You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. This is the show where you'll hear all about things having to do with the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, help with ridding yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports on the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues and reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment. Welcome back to the show. Appreciate those of you who hung in there with me after taking last week off. No show the week of Thanksgiving. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving holiday and didn't overindulge in anything. And by the way, are you also, like me, tired of all the references to tryptophan and turkey meat making you so tired? If those of you uh, who were newer listeners to the show didn't catch what I said about this last year, some people finally debunked this myth. It turns out that, for one thing, turkey doesn't have more tryptophan than most other meats do. And for another thing... What's more likely that makes people so sleepy after their Thanksgiving meal is all the other carbs they eat, the sweet potato casserole, the pumpkin pie, etc. Add to that a couple of beers or glasses of wine and presto, that's what's making you so sleepy. Heck, even just overindulging in eating too much compared to your normal dinner will make you very sleepy, a little slight increase in blood circulation goes to your gastro, gastrointestinal tract to digest that festive meal, and a slightly decreased amount of your cardiac output is going to your brain, so you're going to feel sort of sleepy and sluggish. But if you were curious, don't worry, it is not possible to eat your way into a coma even though if you really overdo it, you might sometimes feel like that. All right, well, enough about defending turkey meat. Let's get serious, because starting off tonight's show is a very serious mental health-related issue indeed. Um, the long-awaited report on the investigation into the Newtown, Connecticut, Sandy Hook Elementary School shooter, Adam Lanza, came out right after I recorded the show two weeks ago. So, sorry if this seems like old news already, but I definitely want to talk about this because certainly uh, it was major, major news when the shooting happened. And now there's some very, very important issues raised by what came out in this report. Uh, Adams Lanza's parents and educators 
contributed to his social isolation in the years before he carried out the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre by accommodating and not confronting his difficulties engaging with the world. According to a state report, the Office of the Child Advocate, which investigated Lanza's upbringing to glean lessons for preventing future tragedies, concluded that Lanza's parents, education team, and others missed signs of how deeply troubled he was and opportunities to steer him toward more appropriate treatment. Lanza killed his mother, then shot his way into the Newtown School on December 14, 2012, hard to believe it's almost been two years ago, and then he gunned down 20 children and six educators before committing suicide. Lanza's obsessions with firearms, death, and mass shootings have been documented by police files, and investigators previously concluded the motive for the shootings may never be known. In exploring what could have been done differently, the new report honed in on his mother, Nancy Lanza, who backed her son's resistance to medication and from the 10th grade on kept him at home, where he was surrounded by an arsenal of firearms and spent long hours playing violent video games. Now, according to one of the report's authors, he says, Mrs. Lanza's approach to try and help him was to actually shelter him and protect him and pull him further away from the world. And that, in turn, turned out to be a very tragic mistake. The authors of the report said Lanza's parents tried to obtain help for him in a variety of ways, but they did not know which path to take and appeared not to grasp the depth and severity of his disabilities. His parents were divorced, and Lanza had not seen his father for two years. After 2008, his parents did not appear to seek any mental health treatment for him, and there was no sustained input from a mental health provider after 2006. The one provider that seemed to understand the gravity of his condition, the Yale Child Study Center, evaluated him in 2006 and called for rigorous daily therapy and medication for conditions including anxiety. At the time, a Yale psychiatrist warned there was risk to creating, quote, a prosthetic environment which spares him having to encounter other students or to work to overcome his social difficulties. The day after the evaluation, Nancy Lanza told the doctor by email that her son would not agree to any sort of medication and that he had been angered by the doctor's line of questioning. Thus, the Yale recommendations went unheeded. In the eighth grade, Lanza was placed on homebound status 
though he later returned before finishing high school through a combination of independent study, tutoring, and college classes. Along the way, according to the report, there was no indication that the Newtown school system or the pediatrician coordinated with service providers regarding Lanza's mental health needs. Records indicate that the school system cared about his success, but also unwittingly enabled Mrs. Lanza's preference to accommodate and appease him through the educational plan's lack of attention to social emotional support, failure to provide related services, and agreement to Adam's plan of independent study and early graduation at age 17, that according to the report. Joseph Erardi Jr., the superintendent of schools for Newtown, said the report will have great meaning if, quote, there is one school leader, one district, one mental health provider, or one set of parents who reads this work and can prevent such a heinous crime, unquote. The report also provocatively asks whether a family that was not white or as affluent as the Lanzas would have been given the same leeway to manage treatment for their troubled child. Is the community more reluctant to intervene and more likely to provide deference to the parental judgment and decision-making of white affluent parents than those caregivers who are poor or minority? Despite disturbing, violence-laced writings that came to the attention of teachers, investigators say there is no evidence Lanza displayed tendencies for violence or aggression. So far, this article we just reviewed about the report demonstrates that while it may seem as if the report is pointing a finger squarely at Mrs. Lanza, uh, they actually took pains to say that there was plenty of fault to go around for this tragedy. Uh, <clears throat> certainly, there was a lack of involvement in his father, uh, and we don't know why that is the case, uh, but certainly, even though they were divorced and he wasn't living in the same area, for there to be no contact for two years raises some questions. Uh, and also, the school did not push the issue of making sure that there was uh, adequate mental health treatment and adequate attention to his education, instead giving in to the mother's and ultimately to uh, uh, Adam's wishes for continuing his education. Uh, likewise, uh, the mental health authorities uh, did not uh, bring to the attention um, any state agency or uh, child welfare agency that the mother was uh, ignoring their recommendations. And yes, Mrs. Lanza ignored the recommendations of mental health professionals uh, in large part uh, because her son was refusing to cooperate. Uh, perhaps she had her own 
negative ideas and prejudices about mental health treatment as well. But uh, certainly there are still the questions about why would she allow him to have access to the tremendous arsenal of weapons that she did. We can argue and debate Second Amendment rights all we want and the right to refuse mental health treatment uh, certainly uh, is it has to be taken into account here, um, but it still leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Now, one of the one of the questions the report does raise has to do with, well, uh, would this have happened if the family were a minority and they were not affluent, and maybe the state and uh, mental health and school authorities could have so so called pushed them around a little bit more? Is that possible? We'll explore that in a different article about this report. When we come back from our next break, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you'll not be rushed and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America's WebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, you're with Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. We are reviewing the Child Advocate Report came out, evaluating the tragic murders committed by Adam Lanza, uh, in Newtown, Connecticut, two years ago. Now, we're, in this next article, going to look at one very narrow, specific issue the report raised. It asks whether the race and affluence of Adam Lanza's family influenced decisions about how to care for his mental health-related problems in the years before he committed the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School Massacre. 
if you recall before the break, we talked about how the report concluded that uh, the parents and to some degree other school and other authorities really accommodated or appeased Adam Lanza's uh, severe mental illness in terms of allowing him to stay home, be socially isolated in the basement playing violent video games, surrounded by an arsenal of weapons, and this was as per his own wishes and secondarily his mother's wishes. And would a minority, less affluent family, would uh, have they been able to flout all the authorities' recommendations for mental health treatment and education for this young man? The report asks, is the community more reluctant to intervene and more likely to provide deference to the parental judgment and decision-making of white, affluent parents than those caregivers who are poor or minority? Would Adam Lanza's caregivers' reluctance to maintain him in a school or a treatment program have gone under the radar if he were a child of color? Uh, interesting questions the report raises. Lanza's father is a financial services executive. Lanza himself and his mother lived in an exclusive neighborhood in the wealthy bedroom community seven miles north of Manhattan. Researchers found that upper-middle-class parents are far more likely to be resistant, defensive, and even litigious when presented with treatment options suggested by school service providers. Deferring to those parents can have grave consequences, allowing nascent problems to escalate to serious and sometimes dangerous levels. Even though some of these parents can be very intimidating, schools ought to hang tough. If there is a psychologist, a teacher, or a social worker who believes this child is headed for deep trouble, they need to be able to assert their opinions in the face of parents who disagree. The report concluded that Lanza's autism spectrum disorder and other psychiatric problems did not specifically in and of themselves cause or lead directly to the massacre. But it did find that his, quote, severe and deteriorating internalized mental health problems, when combined with a preoccupation with violence and access to deadly weapons, quote, proved a recipe for mass murder. Now, uh, the uh, superintendent, again, was quoted for this article saying that wealth and race would never be a factor when deciding how to treat a child in a school system. He said, there would never ever under my watch be a decision made based on race, color, creed, or wealth index. Never, I feel very strongly about this and would never allow this type of influence in any way. Well, again, you know, there, there are a lot of questions raised by this report, even though there were several that have been answered, and there are probably some that will likely never be answered. Uh, however, the people who authored the report, again, were reluctant to 
point the finger solely at Nancy Lanza. And uh, I'm not trying to gang up on her either, but let's face it. I mean, she was the custodial parent. Um, you know, we, we really don't know why the father wasn't in the picture. Uh, but for not being in the picture, for not asserting himself to make sure he was in the picture, uh, there are certainly uh, some questions raised about him as well. But uh, with his mother not following the school's recommendations, not following the mental health treatment provider's recommendations after a thorough evaluation at the Yale Clinic, uh, I, I think that blame has to be squarely pointed at her, even though this isn't the popular or politically correct thing to say or do. In fact, if you recall, when details of Adam Lanza's condition started to filter out after the massacre, there were women who empathized with her, and they were saying, I am Nancy Lanza. Now, what are they talking about? Well, what they're talking about is the tragedy of being a parent, not just a mother, but a parent of a seriously mentally ill child who does not readily respond to treatment uh, or is completely non-cooperative, and the difficulty of getting that child the help that they need, even if they know and understand that that child is mentally ill and desperately in need of treatment. There are often a lot of obstacles and barriers, uh, such as finding the appropriate providers to render appropriate and competent treatment, being able to pay for the treatment. And then what happens if it's one of those cases where the child doesn't respond to treatment, they need more highly specialized, intensive, and yes, expensive care, uh, there is no coverage for that. And also, what happens if the child is refusing to cooperate with treatment, uh, then what do you do? Do you go to court, have the child declared an unmanageable minor? Uh, there are very tragic cases where parents have had little choice in circumstances such as these, but to give up their child essentially to become a ward of the state so that the state can see to it that they get the mental health treatment that they need, even if that is on an involuntary basis. Uh, these are nightmare scenarios, and so I think the people who empathize with what Nancy Lanza went through are the ones who have experienced the situation where they had a desperately ill child and they had troubles like these getting that child the help that they needed. Now, <clears throat> This is one of many, many cases that have taken place over the last several years that also brings up the unfortunately recurring issue of mentally ill people and gun violence. And most of these situations, uh, the authorities are quoted saying, look, mental illness per se does not increase the risk of gun violence. In fact, the mentally ill are much more likely to be the victim of gun violence than they are a perpetrator of it. 
But I found another article about this issue and thought this is logical to follow up what we just talked about uh, with the report on the shooter at the Newtown tragedy. But it says that mental illness is not the biggest reason that youth carry guns. So that, again, in the wake of school shootings, mental health is often thrust into the spotlight. And after the Newtown massacre happened, Connecticut enacted laws requiring the tracking of voluntary commitments to psychiatric hospitals. They increased state services for the mentally ill, and they required school districts to increase mental health training. Such efforts may help prevent mass shootings, and they may or may not actually, but new research highlights a challenge in preventing school violence. Other behavioral factors, such as alcohol and drug use, may actually be more closely linked to youth gun possession than mental health is. While mental health is one component, there are multiple other factors that are strongly associated with gun possession. Researchers at Columbia University in New York focused not on mass shootings alone, but on gun carrying among high school-aged teens. About 3,000 youth under the age of 18 are killed by guns each year, according to research by Children's Defense Fund. Though mass shootings are devastating, they account for only a handful of these deaths. The researchers used data on 13,500 to 16,500 high school students that was collected yearly between 2000 and 2011 by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. In the surveys, the kids reported whether they had engaged in a number of behaviors that researchers consider risky to health. The researchers then used a method of statistical analysis, more commonly used in gene expression studies, to look at how certain risky behaviors may cluster together. They also compared each risk factor to each other risk factor to see which tended to go hand in hand. And what they found was that the behaviors most strongly associated with gun possession were using alcohol, using tobacco, and using other drugs. And by the way, this research was reported in the November 5th issue of the journal PLOS One. Other factors that strongly correlated with gun carrying had to do with the school environment. Teens who said they had done drugs at school, been in a fight at school, or had been threatened at school, were also more likely to report carrying a gun in the months before taking the questionnaire. The school environment seems to play a large role. The researchers' method at looking at so many behaviors enabled them to avoid biases and come at the question of which behaviors in kids are linked with carrying guns with a blank slate. Typically, gun violence researchers not informed by data, but often is informed by incidents in the media and inflammatory rhetoric.
All right, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll be right back with more. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that sleep is an important weapon against infection? Sleep is important because it is restorative. During sleep, known as REM, the body recuperates and resets. For example, the immune system increases its activity and stress hormones drop. There is a correlation between sleep deprivation and frequent colds. The average adult should get 7 to 8 hours of uninterrupted sleep per night, and a child needs more since they are growing. Sleep hygiene is important to set a good foundation. Techniques to promote good quality restorative sleep include going to bed at the same time at night, avoiding alcohol or caffeine prior to bedtime, avoiding exercise in the evening, reading to a young child at bedtime, avoidance of drinking fluids late in the evening, and avoidance of taking decongestants at bedtime. If you are having problems sleeping more than once a week, you should see a doctor for further evaluation. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you on America's Web Radio with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about a study about the connections with youth carrying guns. Uh, again, not mental illness. The highest correlation is with alcohol and drug abuse. Now, these new results were in line with what would be expected from other research studies. Gun possession in youth is part of a complex stew of risky behavior. Between 5 and 6% of students surveyed each year reported carrying a gun 30 days prior. Most of these students did not engage in gun violence, although their carrying a weapon puts them at higher risk of doing so. The real question is, what can we do about it? The risk factors for youth violence are known but research on what programs or laws can prevent gun violence in youth is lacking. In part, that's because of limits on some of the federally funded research on gun violence. Beginning in the 1990s, Congress began amending budget appropriations with language forbidding any research that might advocate or promote gun control. 
After the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012, President Obama called for federal funding of gun research, prompting the National Institutes of Health to put out a call for grant proposals. He also directed the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to fund gun research, but pushback from Republicans in Congress may prevent federal money from reaching researchers. So they completed their work without any outside funding for this study that we're talking about, but they concluded that focusing on mental health will not be enough. The finding that the school environment is important may hint at one place that authorities can start in trying to discourage youth from mixing with guns. Another study released this year found that bullied children are nearly twice as likely to carry weapons to school compared to children who were not bullied, particularly in cases of mass shootings, where there is really sensationalized violence in schools and communities there is a tendency as community members to want to simplify the gun violence issue. For example, so-and-so was depressed and that's why they did this. But gun violence is a very complex issue and one that is likely influenced by many factors that are not understood and rarely discussed. <clears throat> well, to sum up, not much light shed on the issue Globally, we know a little bit more about the specific shooter in Newtown and his situation. But I think what it all boils down to is that it's very difficult to force a patient or a family into treatment if they don't want it. And the system itself for accessing mental health care is too difficult to this day, even for those who do want it. <clears throat> Now let's turn our attention from teens and young people to the aged. An article came out since we last got together showing that many people with dementia may go unscreened and untreated and there may be missed opportunities to intervene before the situation deteriorates further. The majority of people with dementia in the United States may have never seen a doctor about their memory and thinking problems, according to a new study of older adults. The researchers found that 55% of patients screened for dementia as part of the University of Michigan Health and Retirement Study had never been evaluated prior to participating in the study, despite showing a clear cognitive decline. Cognitive functions are things like attention, concentration, and memory. Although the study was small, it was 845 people, the results imply that upwards of 1.8 million Americans, ages 70 and older with dementia, also have either never been screened or are not receiving treatment. This is a lost opportunity because intervention could substantially improve some people's quality of life. This study was published November 26th in the journal Neurology. Early evaluation and identification of people with dementia may help them receive care earlier and help reduce societal costs. People with dementia 
may have any of a host of brain conditions that cause long-term difficulties in thinking and reasoning that are severe enough to affect daily life. The most common form is Alzheimer's disease. Most forms of dementia have no cure and treatment is limited. Nevertheless, screening for dementia at its earliest stages might help doctors slow the progression or better equip family members and the patient to deal with the disease. Some forms of dementia stem from poor nutrition and can be reversed. One common reversible cause of dementia is vitamin B12 deficiency. There are several factors that commonly contribute to overall cognitive disability in patients with dementia that can get better with medical management, namely depression and sleep disorders. Many dementias are caused by cardiovascular risk factors. Identifying these risk factors and modifying them in at-risk individuals can lead to a change in the natural progression of these conditions. For non-reversible forms of dementia, some studies have shown that exercise, social interactions, and engaging the mind in puzzles and games may help slow the progression, although to a very limited degree. <clears throat> I can tell you from my other readings about other research that exercise and social interactions have a much better track record than do games and puzzles. Medications such as the cholinesterase inhibitors, Aricept, Razidine, and <clears throat> Exelon, may help slow the progression, although to a very limited degree. These medications may have a small but positive effect in helping patients maintaining longer bouts of clear thinking. There is one other medication besides the cholinesterase inhibitors that's prescribed for dementia. It's called Nemenda. But the problem with that is it's been in shortage lately in terms of the older generic version, which is discontinued, and the newer version is very difficult to get. While the medications do very little for very few people and not for very long, I think it's more possible than that it will help the care providers uh, make their lives easier. What happens is dementia patients on these medications don't deteriorate as rapidly in terms of their self-care. So you're relieving caregiver burden uh, in that sense, even though memory is not being restored or improved. <clears throat> now, this new study also found that people who were married were more than twice as likely to have had dementia screening as people who were not married. It's possible that spouses feel more comfortable than children do raising concerns about dementia. Another possibility could be that unmarried elderly people may be more reluctant to share their concerns with their doctor if they're worried about the impact it could have on their independence. Deciding when to see a doctor can be tricky. <clears throat> Given that these tests that doctors do are not standardized, and most seniors experience at least some cognitive decline that is not dementia. 
United States Preventive Services Task Force, a non-governmental panel of health experts, does not recommend universal screening for dementia because the benefits of pharmacological treatment might not outweigh the risk. Performing this testing in clinically symptomatic older individuals, however, is a different story. For people with symptoms, a screening may be a great help. People with a family member who needs more help with tasks that they have always been able to handle, specifically because of thinking and memory problems, should consider scheduling a visit to discuss this with the person's doctor. The symptoms of dementia usually first appear after age 60, and the risk increases with age. By the age of 85, between 25 and 50 percent of people exhibit signs of Alzheimer's disease, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Under the Affordable Care Act, Medicare now reimburses people for annual wellness visits that can include an assessment of cognitive function. Now, I just want to mention a few things about this research and this issue in general. There should be more routine screening. And I take issue with the authors of the article who say that screening should begin when someone is symptomatic. Uh, And furthermore, I especially take issue with the people at that health agency that says that screening shouldn't be done. Let's uh, talk a little bit about them. The United States Preventive Services Task Force. Uh, These are the people who advocate not doing mammograms or uh, prostate uh, blood tests because they think the risks outweigh the benefits. There's too many false positives, and you're doing these tests, and you're exposing people to unnecessary invasive procedures such as biopsies and surgeries without saving a sufficient number of lives. Um, In my opinion, these folks are therapeutic nihilists, and while I agree that the tests and screenings and biopsies and surgeries are very expensive, they add to the expense of health care, they also add to uh, anxiety in patients who may be well, and you can debate the number of lives they save save, uh, versus not statistically. Uh, However, I definitely think that they're well worth doing, and I know I'm biased because I'm a physician. I want to err on the side of uh, saving and helping to preserve life. But in the case of dementia, by the time someone is symptomatic, it's already too late. The time to screen is before someone shows any symptoms. And then, in that population, the medication might actually do something. Plus, you can work on modifiable risk factors in a more aggressive way. So yes, screening should be routine. Catch things before they start, and you have a better chance of preventing things from getting going, or at least significantly slowing the progression. All right, we're going to take another break here. We'll be right back after more. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that snoring can lead to chronic health problems? Snoring can be a sign of sleep apnea. Snoring is simply noisy breathing that can disturb those around you. However, sleep apnea is a serious condition that leads to a decrease in oxygen in the blood. 
The brain and the heart are two organs that depend on oxygen to function well. Studies have shown that a lack of oxygen at night leads to weight gain, problems with memory and concentration, depression, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and stroke. There are several ways to decrease snoring. For example, lose weight if you are overweight. Avoid alcohol at least three to four hours before bedtime. Stop smoking. Control nasal allergies to things such as dust and mold. And avoid eating dairy products such as milk and cheese. If you think you have sleep apnea, you should see a doctor to be evaluated. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. Next up on tonight's show, we have a stress in the workplace update. This article talks about how job authority increases depression symptoms in women but decreases them in men. A new study finds that having job authority has differential effects on mood in the different genders. Women with job authority, that is, the ability to hire, fire, and influence pay, have significantly more symptoms of depression than women without this power. In contrast, men with job authority have fewer symptoms of depression than men without such power. Exactly the opposite effect. Now, the study is titled Gender, Job Authority, and Depression, and it appears in the December issue of the Journal of Health and Social Behavior. It considers more than 1,300 middle-aged men and 1,500 middle-aged women who graduated from high schools in Wisconsin. Women without job authority exhibit slightly more symptoms of depression on average than men without job authority, but among people with the ability to hire, fire, and influence pay, women typically exhibit many more symptoms of depression than men. What's striking is that women with job authority in the study are advantaged in terms of most characteristics that are strong predictors of positive mental health. These women have more education, higher incomes, more prestigious occupations, and higher levels of job satisfaction and autonomy than women without job authority. Yet, they have worse mental health than lower status women. So why does having job authority increase symptoms of depression in women but decrease them in men. Years of social science research suggests that women in authority positions deal with interpersonal tension, negative social interactions, negative stereotypes, prejudice, 
social isolation as well as resistance from subordinates, colleagues, and superiors. Women in authority positions are viewed as lacking the assertiveness and confidence of strong leaders. But when these women display such characteristics, they are judged negatively for being unfeminine. This contributes to chronic stress. On the other hand, men in authority positions generally deal with fewer stressors because they do not have to overcome the resistance and negative stereotypes that women often face. Men in positions of authority are consistent with the expected status beliefs and male leadership is accepted as normative and legitimate. This increases men's power and effectiveness as leaders and diminishes interpersonal conflict. In terms of the study's policy implications, the findings indicate that there is a need to address gender discrimination, hostility, and prejudice against women leaders to reduce the psychological costs and increase the psychological rewards of higher status jobs for women. Now, next is an article that is called The Best Jobs for Your Brain. We're sticking with the jobs issue now that we learned that women deal with more depression in the workplace if they're in a position of authority. This article says, well, how did you choose your career? The majority of people, 56%, said the reputation of a potential employer is what most heavily influences where they decide to work. But reputation may not be everything. You may also want to consider how challenging your work is. The mental effort your job requires affects your health long after you've left the company, according to a new study also in the journal Neurology. British researchers assessed the cognitive abilities, that's memory and processing speed, for example, of more than a thousand older adults and analyzed whether their former jobs influenced their scores. To do this, they categorized each career by occupational complexity in three areas, people, data, and things. A job regarded as more complex in terms of work with people might include negotiating or mentoring, whereas less complex jobs might involve taking instructions or helping. Complex people-oriented professions include lawyer, social worker, surgeon, and probation officer, whereas factory worker, painter, and carpet layer are less socially taxing jobs. Similarly, more complex jobs with data might require coordinating and synthesizing data, whereas less complex jobs might be more likely to include copying or comparing data. Examples of complex jobs in this category include architect, civil engineer, graphic designer, and musician, 
whereas less data intensive careers include construction worker, bus conductor, and telephone operator. Are there still telephone operators? Well, anyway, complexity of things might mean preparing machines for operation or deciding which tools are appropriate for a job. Examples include machine setter and instrument maker, while less, com less complex careers in this category are probation officer and bank manager. So how did job complexity affect mental sharpness later in life? Although the effect wasn't huge, the 70-year-olds whose former occupations involved high levels of complexity with data and people performed better on memory and thinking tests. Even after the researchers accounted for their age, I'm sorry, their IQ at age 11 and also their level of education. Complexity of things didn't seem to be associated with cognitive ability. One explanation, careers with high levels of interpersonal and data complexity may build up something called your cognitive reserve. The brain develops a certain way of working. It establishes pathways that are either efficient or not. <clears throat> now, as I was reading the article about this research, I'm thinking to myself, wow, they're, they're presenting uh, a rather bleak picture for those who don't have rather elite professions. And uh, what are people in the less skilled professions to do? Are they to accept their fate that they're uh, doomed to cognitive decline? <clears throat> well, let's, let's read on. If you work in a challenging environment, your brain may form more efficient networks, potentially masking the negative effects of aging on your mental abilities. As you get older, the brain is declining quite a bit, but because it has been taught how to work well through complex tasks, it will perform despite the damage. A large cognitive reserve might also mean that you maintain more volume in the brain over time, or that you have a larger repertoire of problem-solving skills. It's the use it or lose it idea. If your line of work mentally challenges you, we're talking eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. That's a tremendous amount of mental exercise compared to, say, reading a book or working on a crossword puzzle for half an hour each day. Sitting at a job where you're disengaged for eight hours a day, that's dangerous. But that doesn't mean you have to resign yourself to mental decline if your office time isn't exactly mentally demanding. People may be limited in how much influence they have over the complexity of their job, but we can all look at ways to ensure we get more physically or socially engaged in our leisure time. Train your brain to perform well long after retirement with these simple strategies. So these are applicable to any profession, no matter how complex and rich. <clears throat> Your office isn't the only place you can challenge your brain. Find some hobbies. In a study earlier this year, 
greater work complexity both with people and data was associated with better mental ability in old age, but so was participation in leisure activities, especially those with a cognitive or social element, such as reading books or joining clubs. For someone who was stuck in an occupation with low complexity of working with people, having a good social life might make the difference. Signing up for social activities may be especially critical for men since their social lives tend to shrink more significantly than women's after retirement, a risk factor for cognitive decline. We all know women are more socially affiliative. Engage with your co-workers is another bit of advice. Are you chained to your desk all day? Make it a point to engage in face-to-face -face interactions with your co-workers. So gather around the water cooler or talk to your boss in person rather than email. Participating in office politics on occasion may even do your brain solid bit of good. In the workplace, there are complexities of social hierarchies and interactions. Negotiating all these hierarchies is apparently very good exercise for your brain. <clears throat> and then start exercising. This is my favorite part of the article. It says, working on crossword puzzles will help you do one thing well, crossword puzzles. Those skills don't transfer. They're very specific. So cognitive training is not the answer. Physical exercise is. You need to maintain your heart health and therefore good blood flow to the brain. That's the best way to maintain cognitive dysfunction. And I couldn't agree more. And on that note, we will wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time that we get together on the show. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.